Hello, Anti-Culture listeners. Today, we have an incredible story for you that is guaranteed to defy all odds. It's the story of the single-handed sailor. Dustin Reynolds is on track to become the first double amputee to circumnavigate the globe by sailing. What started in Hawaii in 2014 has currently landed him in Panama on his way back to the islands he calls his home. Dustin's story is special because it was a drunk driving accident that left him doubly amputated. The former athlete was nearly killed, but came out the other side with a sense he'd lost everything that made him who he was. That all changed when Dustin decided he was going to do it. Circumnavigate the globe completely on his own, with one less arm and one less leg, and no sailing experience. Dustin has found freedom through tragedy and has learned that who he is far surpasses any limitations you might put on him. The day that I left the dock in Hawaii, I'd still never sailed by myself. I'd never left the dock by myself. And all my friends in this last bit of I love yous and blah, 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 they all want to take off as quickly as possible, not draw it out and make it more difficult. So no one actually stuck around to like help me <laughs> untie the dock line. <laughs> And so I had to untie the lines, push the boat off, jump on board. You know, the sail, my sailboat wasn't that maneuverable. So it was kind of tricky to get it out of the spot that it was in. And yeah, it was, it was interesting. But leaving Hawaii was, I mean, I sailed down the coast because I had no communication to see either. So as soon as I left cell phone coverage, you know, I was, I was literally all by myself. This episode of Anti-Culture is brought to you by Park Power your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. Offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Park Power has low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. If you decide to switch, it's easy. It really is just a change to your billing and you can feel good knowing you're helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Anticulture is also brought to you by ATB and their Built to Help Albertans campaign. The Built to Help Albertans campaign was created to help answer commonly asked questions from Albertans during our economic recovery from the effects of COVID-19. ATB's history in our province, which was formed out of a need for support during the tough times of 1938, ATB has always been and continues to be committed to our province. Looking to rebuild and get back to your normal? Visit ATB.com for more information on this campaign. As a sailor myself, I first heard Dustin's story on the podcast, This Is Actually Happening, one of my favorite podcasts from Wondery, and I had to reach out to chat with him myself. I guarantee his story will leave you incredibly inspired, motivated, and encouraged. This is the ultimate out-of-the-box story for our show, and I'm excited to dive in with Dustin live from Panama, where he just docked a few days ago on his way back to completing this astonishing task. There's so much to cover. I mean, the past six years of your life has been crazy. What started in June 2014 has taken you almost all the way around the world. And beyond that, you just have an incredible story about where life has brought you. And it's not really something that you expected to have happen in your life, the chance to circumnavigate the globe. How does it feel that you're almost done your journey? Well, I would say there's some excitement to be back home and see my friends and just kind of 
like share that with them because so many people in Hawaii, you know, saw me begin and through my accident and everything else. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of these people went through this with me and to get back and be able to share that moment with them returning, like I'm really excited about. But then there's also a little bit of anxiety of what I'm going to do next. Yeah. And before this journey, maybe you can paint us a little bit of a picture pre-accident, how you would identify yourself or who you saw yourself to be as a person. I think I would see myself as a waterman. I was a diver, surfer, fisherman. I always tried to be involved with my community. I was a search and rescue diver and a volunteer firefighter. And I was a volunteer basketball coach as well. I did a lot of physically active stuff. And, you know, I like to try to be part of my community. And I was a small business owner. I owned a carpet cleaning business and a commercial fishing boat. So that kind of afforded me the time to do things that I wanted to do as well. So, you know, having those two businesses made it so I could volunteer my time for stuff that I cared about. Yeah, it sounded like a lot of your passions did revolve around high activity and being out on the water. And I guess that is all kind of wrapped up into a bit of the Hawaiian lifestyle. Would you say that's true? Yeah, definitely so. It's a whole community of people surrounded by ocean. And almost everybody in Hawaii really appreciates the land and the island. And so it's something that I really appreciate about Hawaii. Now, I do want to ask if you could maybe walk us through what happened with the accident that changed your life and kind of the emotions that you were feeling when you thought that maybe your life had changed forever. I was riding my motorcycle home one night and um, oncoming vehicle swerved across the center lane and it looked as if he was trying to hit me. I mean, it was just on a straightaway. And I was resting my feet up on the back of the motorcycle just with a single hand on the throttle. And, you know, I wasn't prepared to try to avoid somebody. And I got up as fast as I could and I avoided as fast as I could, but he hit me. The next thing I remember is lying on the side of the road. I don't remember the collision. And like when I woke up, it was as if if I woke up from a dream. Like I was confused why my helmet was still on. In my head, I like woke up in my bed or something. So I reached over, like as I was trying to take my helmet off. And, you know, I still feel my left arm as if it's there. And trying to take my helmet off, I couldn't figure out why my left arm wasn't helping. And so I reached over and just grabbed this cold, wet, bloody stump. And yeah. it was like, oh my gosh, that truck hit me. It all fl- kind of flashed back. And, you know, I screamed for help a few times. And surprisingly, my phone survived the collision. And I called 911. I did pause for a moment briefly to try to consider, like, what my life would be like, you know, continuing forward, missing an arm. And I knew my foot was really badly damaged. I tried to stand up and couldn't. So, you know, I in my head, I was potentially going to be like physically handicapped the rest of my life or with almost certainty that I would be. It took me a second to actually work up the courage to call 911 and ask them to come save my life because I, I didn't know if I wanted to continue forward being physically disabled. Wow. And I'm guessing in the moment too, you were probably not feeling any pain either. It was just pure adrenaline. Yeah. I didn't start feeling pain until I was inside the ambulance. So when, um, You know, they put me in the ambulance and we were waiting and I was probably coming out of shock a bit and I started feeling pain and, you know, asked the ambulance drivers like, hey, you know, why aren't we moving? And they're like, oh, we're looking for your arm. 
it's like, I really don't feel well, guys. Can you bring me to the hospital now? <laughs> They're like, it's our policy to send you with all your parts. I was like, someone else could find it. Can you please take me to the hospital? I feel like crap. There's a strange thing, though, too. Like, I don't remember anybody's faces that night. It was like the part of my brain that, like, registered people's faces was completely wiped out. Like, I went back and thanked those guys. You know, I brought them donuts after the hospital and stuff and thanked them for picking me up. And when I saw the guys I was in the ambulance with, the ambulance was well lit, but it was like I'd never seen them before. And then even my friends that visited me in the hospital before going in for surgery. Like, I remember all our conversations verbatim, but I don't remember seeing anybody's faces. That's so interesting. What do you think it was that pushed you to have that will to live when you realized what your situation was? It was probably a bit of just instinct. And I'm also a pretty optimistic person. I kind of just had this feeling like I thought, you know, they could probably reattach the arm. They could fix the foot. You know, I'll be fine. You know, it's going to be a bit of rehab or whatever. At the time, I didn't think that it was uh, necessarily going to be permanent. And then I guess I wasn't really sure how bad it would be. Yeah. And after surgery and kind of coming out of that recovery, quote unquote recovery, did you feel like you had lost a sense of self? Did you deal with any kind of dread or depression? And how did your identity shift after that situation? It took a while. So coming home from the hospital, I had this unbelievable amount of support. Like my friends and family came and visited me in the hospital and I was never alone. And everybody was so scared and, you know, freaked out. And I kind of just took it on my, upon myself to like try to reassure everybody that things would work out. And when I got home, you know, then I had to actually start processing it for myself. And I try to keep myself busy. You know, I would even something like going to the post office. I went to the post office almost every day, you know, to get my company's mail. You know, I didn't have to, but I just wanted like some sort of routine and something to do that I could do. You know, so I'd hop to the car, bring my wheelchair, go to the post office and whatnot. And yeah, it just became kind of a thing of just trying to move forward and do something every day. But there were definitely times where it wasn't that easy. I was denied care because Hawaii is a no-fault state. So if you're in a motor vehicle accident that is underinsured, there's this deal with the insurance, like the car insurance company and your health insurance company. And like immediately I had to get blood draws for blood thinners I was taking. So they had to get a blood draw, see how thin my blood was. They call them INRs and adjust my medication accordingly. And, you know, if your blood gets too thin, you could bleed it eternally and die. And if your blood gets too thick, it'll knock free the blood clots and go to your heart or brain and also die. And so it's quite an important thing. And going to the doctor, they're like, no, we can't see you unless you pay cash in advance. And I was like, I have health insurance. You know, I, you know, it's like, what, what is this? And they're like, well, if it's a motor vehicle accident, there's these no fault, you know, rules. And you have to pay like $175 per blood draw. And I needed three a week. And I was like, I can't afford that. You know, I'm not working right now. And, you know, so I ended up having to drive 20 minutes away to the uh, emergency room to get my blood draws. And I mean, through that, like I started to have a lot of anger towards the system. I was just like, you know, I paid for health insurance. I had all this stuff and like insurance on everything. And it, it was all kind of turning around on me. And so I started to feel angry. Did you feel like you had to reform kind of what made you who you were? Because I mean, before 
your life was so revolving around very active things. And, and like you said, being on the water and obviously before you had this plan to circumnavigate, I imagine that there was just also this sense of, I guess, unfamiliarity with yourself too. Is that something that you, you also dealt with? Oh yeah, of course. And I was embarrassed to be in the wheelchair, which was interesting. If I hopped around on a crutch, I felt like I was injured, you know, and when I was in the wheelchair, I felt like people looked at me different, whether they did or not. And I was embarrassed. And like, I was embarrassed to go out. I was embarrassed to whatever. And, you know, I don't think that I should have been now, but back then I was. And so, you know, just always identifying myself as one way and then suddenly being the other. And then also having people look at you differently or look at you with sympathy. It was really difficult for me to process. And my girlfriend at the time, you know, we'd only been dating a few weeks. She ended up moving in with me. And I went from being this fiercely independent person to cohabitating, having somebody that was changing my bandages and helping me out and all this stuff. And, you know, I had this dependency on her that I was really uncomfortable with. That was really difficult to process also. And, you know, unfortunately, like, I mean, it was completely my fault with our relationship. I had to, I pushed her away just because. I wanted to like be myself again or find myself again. And I didn't feel like I could do that partnering with somebody. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it seems like you've made the ultimate independent decision to circumnavigate the globe for six years. What was it that brought you to that point where you decided, you know what, I'm going to do this incredible feat. And I, if I'm right, I don't think you had a lot of sailing experience either. So what brought you to that place? Yeah, so it was a combination of a few things. Yeah, I had almost zero sailing experience. I went out twice on a lake with my dad when I was a kid. You know, he wasn't a sailor either. We sailed on a small boat that his friend had. About four years after the accident, I had gone through a bankruptcy. I had to do an offer and compromise with the IRS, which was this horrific process and you know, $400 a month payments for four years. And I had a reconstructive surgery done on my left leg. So I had this thing called an Ertl procedure that, you know, actually made me a lot stronger on prosthetics. But that was a three-month recovery process as well. So I spent another three months in a wheelchair. And all right around the same time, you know, I get out of the wheelchair, the bankruptcy is finalized, and I drop off the last check for the IRS. I remember walking into the post office and you know, I mentioned like that was kind of my routine, the thing that was like keeping me sane for a while I was going to the post office every day. So this lady in the post office sees me getting in and out of a wheelchair and sometimes walking on a prosthetic, sometimes on a crutch, sometimes back in the wheelchair again, and just going in there like almost daily. And I brought in that last IRS check and I broke down and started crying. I was just like, man, these last four years have sucked. <laughs> yeah. This is my last payment to the IRS. I'm finally debt free and blah, 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 blah. And it was maybe a few weeks later, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. Like I was feeling stronger, I was debt free, but I had the carpet cleaning business and the fishing boat. They were both fairly decrepit. Like the carpet cleaning van needed to be replaced at the time of the accident. And then after three years of not being used and poor maintenance and not enough money to reinvest, it got a lot worse. And I had no cash and no credit, so there was no way for me to reinvest in the companies. And everything that was being offered to me, I was working for the Sheridan Hotel previously as a bartender, and they offered me like a cashier job, which, you know, pays about one third of what I made as a bartender. 
like I wasn't finding any option that was really going to bring me back to some sort of financial freedom. And randomly, I saw this website of people who had set records sailing around the world alone. I was like, well, no, there's no double amputee on that list. You know, I'm just going to do that. I started looking for boats and yeah, it was just, I mean, something completely random. So why don't you quickly take us through what your journey has been so far and kind of, yeah, maybe just like plot out the map of how your travels have been and what it was like leaving. Leaving was tough. I had this incredible support structure around me in Hawaii. My friends were amazing. You know, the Hawaii community really looked after me. Like they threw me a benefit concert, you know, right after the accident that really kept me afloat for like six months. And then just before leaving, they threw me another benefit concert to help, you know, pay for stuff on the boat. And, you know, Kona is a small town. So I, the whole community, everyone kind of knows everybody. So it's hard to leave that. And especially like in the condition I was in, because I, you know, when I left Hawaii, I was down to $20 in my bank account. Like I basically just going off on this grand adventure, not knowing how or how I'm going to finance it or whatever. And I'm leaving this incredible support structure. And so that part was, you know, really scary. And then, you know, just saying bye to all my friends on the dock. And, you know, the day that I left, I had never sailed by myself before. I did a one month trip around Hawaii with my friend Brandon learning how to sail. (laughs) So, you know, I watched the YouTube videos and all that stuff. And my roommate, Brandon, he one day was going through the TV, the YouTube stuff. And he sees all these like instructional sailing videos on YouTube. And he's like, you don't know how to sail, do you? I was like, well, I do now. You know, I watch the videos, you know, because I try to tell people like not to worry. You know, it's fine. I know how to sail and blah, blah, blah. I wasn't trying to be misleading. I just didn't want, you know, people to worry about me. So the day that I left the dock in Hawaii, I'd still never sailed by myself. I'd never left the dock by myself. And all my friends in this last bit of I love you's and blah, 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 they all want to take off as quickly as possible, not draw it out and make it even more difficult. So no one actually stuck around to like help me (laughs) untie the dock lines. And so I had to untie the lines, push the boat off, jump on board. My sailboat wasn't that maneuverable. So it was kind of tricky to get it out of the spot that it was in. And yeah, it was it was interesting. But leaving Hawaii, I mean, I sailed down the coast because I had no communications at sea either. So as soon as I left cell phone coverage, you know, I was, I was literally all by myself. And so I stayed close to Hawaii as long as I could as well, just to get my last phone calls in. And where did you go from there and kind of what have been your your stopping points, maybe in a quick summary? My first stop was still one of the most amazing places I've ever been. And I really hope I get to see it again. It's a place called Palmyra. It's a small privately owned atoll. It's owned by the Nature Conservancy. And a lot of people go there to do research. And it's only really available by private plane or if uh, you sail there. And they allow, I think, 10 boats per year maximum to visit the place and I think the year I went there was like five boats that went it's just unreal the bird life there's a booby population and terns and frigates and I've never seen anything like it and giant clams and you know just incredible shark species you know there's dives I would see like over 100 sharks and so I was like oh this is just amazing this is what the South Pacific's going to be like and yeah there's nobody there's nowhere like Palmyra I recently read about Palmyra even before I heard your story and 
there's a few like conspiracies and ghost stories around it. Did you hear any of that while you were there? Oh, yeah. I actually met a guy who crashed a plane there. And then there was also there was murders in Palmyra. There was oh, like wow. this crazy person that was living there that was killing people also. There's also uh, these giant coconut crabs there that are, they look like these alien crabs walking around. They're huge. They're like 10 pounds. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like just this unreal place. It sounds like a dream world. It, it really is. I, like I said, I mean, it's one of the top places in the world that I've ever visited. Cool. So, yeah. So, you left Palmyra. You're in the South Pacific. Obviously, one of the like least populated areas. Did it feel lonely ever? Did you or did you enjoy the isolation? I think it was new enough for me that it didn't feel lonely. I was always excited about everywhere that I visited. And the South Pacific for sailing, I mean, I still think it's the best place in the world because you could go to all these different islands. They have different cultures. They still trade with the sailors. So you come in and you bring in t-shirts and fishing lines and lures and whatever. And they, you know, give you, you know, fresh produce from the island and fish or whatnot. Just going around to place to place to place and everything always being different and amazing. It was really special. And the way people reacted to me as well, because some of these smaller islands, you know, they've never seen somebody survive an injury as catastrophic as mine. You know, there's no hospital, there's no antibiotics, you know, just like a moderate infection is fatal in these places. To see somebody missing an arm and a leg sailing a boat by themselves was really quite surprising for them. So I got like a lot of attention that, you know, most of the other sailors don't get. And then also being by myself, you know, I also get invited to dinners and whatever. So, you know, I spent a lot of time with the villagers where a lot of the other sailors will go to the island, bring something, you know, spend an hour walking around, then go back to the boat for cocktails and dinner, where I usually just stayed on the island and hung out with the locals. And I really enjoyed that. It was something that is unique about my trip that I don't think anybody else will quite get the same feeling. So the South Pacific was really, it still like has my heart. I, and I'll be back there before too long. So I'm excited. So I know that part of your journey obviously was interrupted by COVID, perhaps, perhaps not. But what was it like for you when COVID hit? Was it strange? Did you, did you, how did you conceptualize what was going on around the world? Yeah, it was tough. So when COVID hit, when it first started, I just got to the US Virgin Islands and I lost one of my prosthetic legs overboard. So I had to fly to San Francisco to get a new leg. And so I flew to San Francisco, left my boat in the Virgin Islands, you know, had a new prosthetic leg made. And I remember, like, I went, I think I was on the BART on the train, and this guy was wearing a mask. And I had heard about COVID briefly, but I thought, you know, it was like bird flu or swine flu or whatever, something was just going to come and go. And I, this guy was wearing a mask on the train, and he's like, oh, have you heard about this coronavirus? I was like, yeah, clearly you have, buddy. <laughs> you know, and I was just completely dismissive and rude. And <laughs> then... I was like, oh my gosh, that guy on the train knew. <laughs> so I get back to the U.S. Virgin Islands and everything starts shutting down. My plan was to go to Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Cuba, Panama. And all of a sudden, like all the countries in the Caribbean start closing down. I was like, you know, I'm just going to wait it out. And then May came along and then it starts to get into the hurricane season. So I decided the person who owns Bristol Marine, 
which is where my boat was built, reached out to me and said, hey, if you come up to Bristol, you know, we'll refurbish your boat for you for free. And at the time he offered that, you know, I was seeing the finish line. It's like, no, I'm going to get back to Hawaii. You know, I really appreciate it, but it's way out of my way. And well, now that I was stuck, I was like, called them back up. I was like, hey, is, you know, your offer still good? It's like, yeah, come on up. So I sailed, you know, another 1200 miles out of my way up to Bristol, Rhode Island and got the boat fixed up and, and spent the summer up in New England. So it sounds like there has been lots of twists and turns to your journey. You're not just kind of anchored to the boat, no pun intended, but you're able to travel around and make other stops. And you've even mentioned that you took a little detour and went to Argentina for a different sailing trip. And yeah, tell us about kind of what that's been like, kind of going off your own timeline. Yeah, it's something I've only done a couple of times. So I have done a few yacht deliveries, like delivering other people's boats from one place to the next to make money for my own trip. We sailed from Chile to Antarctica and back. And yeah, that was amazing. I, we spent about two and a half weeks in Antarctica. It was about a six-day trip both ways and the roughest ocean in the world on a 38-foot boat with four guys. And it was absolutely amazing. You know, just connecting with the crew in that way through those difficult situations was something that I'll always cherish. And I feel that way about the yacht deliveries also. It's something that I've really come to love is just spending time with other people in that way. Because this is something most people don't get, even with their own families, where you like have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with a crew doing like a singular goal for a week or more at a time. Or like when I went to Antarctica, it was more like six weeks of preparing the boat, going to see breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. And, you know, you really get to know each other and you have this bond that, you know, I don't think most people ever get the chance to have. And so being able to take some of that time away from my boat and actually connect with people, because that's one thing that you do kind of miss out on sailing around the world by yourself is having that connection. It's something that's probably helped keep me sane also. I do want to know what, for you personally, was your most incredible moment at sea, your most awe-inspiring moment. Was there a, a singular instance where you felt the most inspired? I think leaving South Point, Hawaii, I was talking to a friend, I was a girlfriend at the time, I suppose, and still nervous, you know, like, I was like going down the coast of Hawaii. You know, I still had that tether with the cell phone connection. And like I saw a squall, which is like these kind of little mini storms, you know, just a big dark cloud with high wind and rain. And I was like, I got to go. I got to like bring the sails down, prepare for this. And so I hang up the phone and I get the sails down. The squall hits and I get, you know, completely soaked and go through the little first beating of my sailing career. And as soon as it was finished, I go back and there's no cell phone reception, you know? So I have this like moment where I'm all by myself, you know, where I'm actually truly alone. You know, there's no communication with the outside world for at least 10 days until I reach my destination. It was rough. You know, the trade winds are like 20, 25 knots, you know, which is like, you know, 25, 30 miles an hour. And, I was remember thinking it's like I would have never taken my fishing boat out in these conditions. This is something that where I'd normally just stay home if it was this rough. But then I, I'm like, I'm doing this by myself. And I start like reading, like my friends like wrote a bunch of notes on this like wind vane 
paddle. So I started reading what all my friends wrote and I just had this kind of, I had this uncertainty, but there was confidence and there was hope and there was loss. And I just had this moment of just taking all that in at once and being alone. And I think that was probably, I mean, it, it wasn't really anything spectacular as far as things going on around me, but just my own like realization of what I'm about to do was something that really, you know, it really affected me. Yeah. Did you feel like, you know, being the moments you were alone and oftentimes it was big swaths of time that you were, did you feel like you developed over these six years a stronger sense of self-identity than before? I've definitely, yeah, I got more of a stronger self-identity, stronger self-confidence. It is fatiguing. Doing this for this long has been difficult because in the beginning, you know, I didn't mind, you know, and I go to one of these remote islands and spend weeks at a time with the villagers and that don't speak English, so it's hard to even have a conversation. Or I'll go to uninhabited islands and just go fishing and diving for a week and just enjoy it. And after about six and a half years of doing that, that part's lost its appeal a little bit because, you know, you kind of want to share it with somebody. I remember this moment I was in, this island's called Gili Banta in Indonesia. It's right near the Komodo Islands. I went to the beach, I hiked to the top of the hill, you know, it was a small mountain or whatever, and come back down. It was a pink sand beach, absolutely gorgeous, flat, calm. I could see a volcano in the distance. I go for a dive, catch a few lobsters. I'm making dinner. There's manta rays behind the boat. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing, but also kind of sucks at the same time because I have no one to share it with. And even now, like there's a few stops that like coming here, there was a reef between like Jamaica and San Andreas and I wanted to stop and it didn't work out because of timing but then also six years ago I would have spent a week on that reef diving every day and now after six years of diving remote places I'm just like yeah you know it's just another (laughs) remote reef. That's fascinating I mean the description of that Indonesian island just sounds incredible and I mean same with Palmyra I can't even imagine but yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure anyone would feel the way that you feel. And I think it's it goes to show that kind of no matter what you're experiencing, even the most amazing things on earth, they can they can lose their appeal. And we really value our community above everything else. Do you find that that's something that you feel is true? Yeah, definitely so. And I think that's also what's made this last leg a bit tough also, because the international sailing community is extremely close. If you take out the Caribbean and the Mediterranean, there's only like a couple of thousand boats sailing around the world at a time. And, you know, people, you get into these weather patterns, you know, so we all sail for se- during seasons, you know, we do the trade wind seasons and cross equators. And so all of us are kind of following the same rules to avoid hurricane seasons and whatnot. And so all of the boats cruising around the world, like on your same tie line, you, you just run into them all the time. So it becomes a community of sailors going, essentially to all the same places. And even if we're not specifically following each other, you end up running into each other all the time. When I got to the Caribbean, most of the international yachts just went straight for Panama and back to the Pacific. You know, the, And a lot of these people started in the Caribbean for years and years and years before going to the Pacific. 
but I had never been to the Caribbean. So I wanted to experience that in the Caribbean life. So everyone leaves and the community of sailors, I mean, it was basically like this tight community that I'd been with for the last, you know, four or five years was suddenly back in the Pacific. And now I'm like meeting new people again and having that constant, like getting to know people, becoming part of a community, leaving and starting over again is also, that's another fatiguing thing for this. I did want to ask you if there was any point of your journey where you did fear for your life and how you were able to kind of get over that or what situation was like. I think the part of my trip that shook me the most was leaving Indonesia or leaving Bali more specifically. When I got to Bali, my sailboat was a complete wreck. Every time I left Bali, something catastrophic would break. And it was like a, about a 1,200-mile trip from Bali to Malaysia, where it's going to go next. So I left Bali like four times and got towed back in three with a catastrophic failure. The third time I got towed back in, my motor wasn't working. I was able to sail out without the motor. And the forestay came down, like the front sail of the boat. And I've always had this confidence. Like I went through three countries with no motor that if the motor doesn't work, I could always still sail. But at this moment, I could also not sail. Like I had this catastrophic failure with the rig. The boat was just a complete wreck. And if I was out at sea and that forest day came down, the mast would typically come down as well. But I was lucky it was in really calm conditions that this happened. I was like, I had no motor. I have no redundancy. I could have really been stranded at sea for a long time. And if the mast came down on top of the solar panels, I would have had a problem with water, you know, because the water maker runs off the solar. I could have really been in a really tight spot. And I got towed back into Bali again. I got that part fixed. And I had this Balinese guy do a Balinese blessing on my boat. And there was like four stages of this Balinese blessing. And stage four involved sacrificing a live chicken. And so I went with stage three. I, <laughs> I didn't want the live chicken to go down. But if I got towed back in again, I would have done the chicken blessing. So I did the stage three blessing and had one more go at it. And I had a really horrific trip up to Malaysia, you know, because the boat, I still didn't have a functioning motor. But I w that was the part where I was almost, I was ready to give up. And getting to Thailand, the boat was still pretty in bad shape. And I was ready to give up on the trip. And my girlfriend at the time convinced me to start the crowdfunding. And doing that changed it. You know, I was able to buy this boat. You know, the crowdfunding's actually kept me going now. And I'm now on a boat that's well-maintained and safe. And for the first half of my trip, I was on this decrepit boat that was breaking down all the time. That's crazy. Yeah, it's it's it would have been like, I would have felt like that was like such a risk, but that's amazing. <laughs> I love that. And I'm glad you're doing okay now, <laughs> six years later. Yeah, it's honestly, I mean, these last few miles that are left over, I I feel like doing the miles, it's like going to the grocery store. It's just like a chore. So I, I'm not really too concerned with the last miles of the trip. But I am I'm still really excited about Galapagos and Polynesia. These are two places that I've dreamed of visiting my whole life. And so, you know, I get a hit two of, the places I've wanted to visit most in the world, you know, on my way home. 
How would you summarize, I guess, what you've learned about humanity since you kind of have this weird bird's eye view that not a lot of us have when we're seeing the same people all the time and, and staying in the same place? Is there like a common thread that you've picked up on? The one thing that I really have realized and almost everywhere I've been is incredibly safe. There's not really that much danger out there in most countries. And I've been to like, I think 38 countries in the last six years. And it's, I've locked my boat a handful of times in, you know, six years. It's almost everywhere I bear has been, it was incredibly safe. The people are really nice and welcoming and accommodating. And it's interesting because if you watch like news, you'll see like all this negativity and the negativity should be only about governments, not about people. Like people are all kind of the same. You know, we all, you know, just want to live a good life and, you know, raise families or whatever you know, in my case, sail around the world. But I've never had a time where I've been somewhere where I had a negative view of the people that live there. And even, I'll use one example. When I got to Madagascar, there was this no, northern island I stopped at. It's called uh, Nozi Mitsua, I think. I stopped at this little island. I go to shore. And I'm used to that normal welcoming committee where, hey, there's this one arm, one leg guy by himself, you know, off the sailboat. And I just didn't get it at all. Like everybody was very apprehensive. In Madagascar, they either speak French or Malagasy. So, and I don't speak French or Malagasy. So it was hard to communicate. And eventually someone who spoke English came up to me and kind of showed me around a little bit. He's like, you got to be very careful because there's a horrible human trafficking problem here. When they see a white person off a boat, they think you're essentially a slaver. I was like, oh my God, you know, I didn't know. And he says, when you're here in Madagascar, don't bring a camera and take pictures right away. Get to know people first. Because even just showing up and taking photos, they're going to think you're taking photos and like getting orders for slaving in the Middle East. And, I, you know, I was horrified. I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. But after about three days on that island they're inviting me to dinner and we're trading like groceries for fishing gear and like everything's fine like they accepted me after just a couple of days and even though they've experienced this horrific loss of having their daughters taken into slavery they still like saw me as a human being and got past it almost instantly so like despite like all the struggles i think that our countries and governments have the people just aren't that way. People are good and nice and, and accepting of me. So when you return to Hawaii, what exactly does that mean for you? Are you going to apply for a Guinness World Record? Are you expecting a lot of press? What do you think is going to happen when you actually complete the journey? That is all good questions. I'm working on a book right now, so I'm hoping to find a agent at some point and publisher. So I'll start reaching out to press. Up until recently, I avoided, well, it was up until I got to Thailand, I avoided press because, you know, I didn't really know how to sail. So I didn't want to tell a bunch of people I was going to sail around the world and figure out that it was too tough or it just wasn't fun. But now that I'm getting close to finishing my trip, you know, a bit of publicity would probably help if I want to sell a book. So I'll reach out to some press. I will definitely enjoy having... Christmas dinner with my friends and I will take it in for a little bit. I reached out to Guinness a little while ago 
to, for them to certify something like what I've done, you know, it could be quite expensive. So, you know, they wanted to like send, you know, people to each spot that I go and verify that I'm leaving by myself and arriving by myself. And, you know, it wasn't something that I could afford to have pay for someone to fly in and out of every spot. I will see if they could certify it in another way, because like I said, you know, you kind of travel around the world in these communities of other sailors and, you know, there's dozens of people that would verify that I've done what I said I did. So I think it's a possibility that it could be verified in another way, but I'm not sure. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing the completion story and what happens there. That's amazing. Well, congratulations, Dustin. And so exciting to hear your journey. And yeah, I want to commend you for turning a situation that many of us would not have been able to completely around and doing something so incredible. And thank you for serving as that inspiration to so many people. And we're looking forward to continue to follow you. I really appreciate the talk, man. Yeah, thank you. This has been fun. I want to thank Dustin so much for joining me on my show at such a special time in his journey around the world. You can get in touch with Dustin, support his GoFundMe account, read his blog, and even track his GPS coordinates as he makes his way back to Hawaii by visiting thesinglehandedsailor.com. You can also find him on Instagram at thesinglehandedsailor. Anticulture is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, where you can find an incredible list of shows like mine made here in Alberta at albertapodcastnetwork.com. This episode was recorded remotely with the help of We Edit Podcasts in their studio in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, where all current COVID-19 protocols were safely followed. Stay tuned for two more episodes of Anticulture this incredible season. We're only going up from here. If you'd like to stay in touch, drop a line or support me, visit my website at josiahpodcast.com. I'll talk to you soon.